You've got to believe you're a big deal before anyone else will believe you're a big deal. And if you're waiting for a, a degree or a training, stop waiting. Just act as if you belong and people will treat you as if you belong. Welcome to Stand Out, Get Noticed, the podcast that helps you speak and present with rockstar confidence. I'm Christina Cantors, your host and founder of The C Method Communication Skills Training. For free resources and to subscribe to the show, visit thecmethod.com. Hi there, Rockstar. This is episode 121 of Stand Out, Get Noticed. Christina with you here. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. And if you're a regular listener, Thank you for your ongoing support. I received a lovely email last week from listener Claudia. I'm just going to read a little bit out to you because I thought it was amazing to hear. She writes, Public speaking is one of my passions and for many years I lacked confidence because of my accent. Spanish is my native language. Listening to you and your guests have given me new perspectives, ideas and the most important thing for me is to embrace my uniqueness and be authentic, which I'm continuously learning. Claudia also mentioned how her 20-month-old daughter dances when my ukulele playing comes on. So cute. Just want to say a big thank you to you, Claudia, for your feedback. You are an absolute rock star. Okay, today's episode, I'm resharing a conversation I had with someone who I thought had so much goodness to share and that I found hugely valuable. And I believe it's super important for you to really understand and practice these concepts that she shared. Her name is Sari Delamotte, and she's the CEO and founder of Forte, a communications consulting firm. She specializes in nonverbal communication, and we focused our conversation around the concept of presence, what it means to have presence, how you can project presence, all by simply changing the way that you communicate non-verbally. So if you want to be able to walk into a room or get up to speak and have people shut up and listen and give you their full attention, there is a lot of good stuff in this conversation that you will get a lot out of. I originally published this conversation in episode, I think it was 104, but I wanted to reshare it because I do believe it is super important. So if you've already listened to this episode, I recommend you listen again because you might pick up on something that you didn't the first time. Show notes for this episode will be at thecmethod.com slash presence. Before we get to that, I have a couple of announcements. Number one, shout out to everyone who came to my podcasting for business workshop yesterday at Hub Southern Cross. I had an absolute blast and the feedback I got was that it was very helpful. So thank you. In this presentation, I shared what I've learned from almost four years of podcasting now. Has it been that long? And how you can use podcasting to grow your business. I recorded the whole Uh, presentation and I'll release it as a bonus episode for you. So keep an ear out for that. And secondly, second announcement, if you want to build your confidence, impact and presence as a speaker, I invite you to join me for a very special public speaking live masterclass. It's happening Friday, August the 4th, so that's next Friday in Melbourne. Over this half-day workshop, you'll develop the skill of public speaking and you'll learn how to overcome your fears, reduce your nerves and anxiety around public speaking, and dramatically increase your confidence too. I'm so excited for this. It's going to be for a small group only, 12 people max. So everyone will get lots of individual attention from me and there'll be plenty of opportunity to practice in front of the group. 
And don't worry if you're feeling a little bit intimidated, it will be a very, very supportive environment for you to practice your speaking in. So if you've been looking to work on your speaking, to build your confidence, learn how to structure a compelling presentation and articulate your ideas clearly, this one is for you. Don't wait until the last minute to get your tickets because spots are strictly limited. They are going to sell out. So go to thecmethod.com slash masterclass. Don't forget to put the the, the C as in letter C, method.com slash masterclass and you'll be redirected to the Eventbrite page. I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, moving on to this week's conversation with Sari Delamotte. Enjoy. I see that you used to be a classically trained pianist. I did. I guess I'm still classically yeah. trained, technically. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you did that professionally? I, you know, I taught professionally. I was actually yeah. uh, getting my master's degree, finishing up my master's degree in teaching, and then I was on my way to get a doctorate in piano pedagogy, which means how to teach piano. And because I wanted to work at the university level, and that's when my career took a turn, and I am now where I am today. So, tell me more about how you then transitioned into teaching people in nonverbal communications and starting your, your firm. Well, it was interesting. My mentor at the time, who was really probably the best teacher ever, uh, had me, she said, you need to go to this week-long nonverbal communication training. And of course, my first question was, why? You know, when I hear nonverbal communication back then, and as many of our uh, people do now that come in contact with our company, we immediately think it's the body language stuff. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to learn how to, you know, tell if someone's lying because they're blinking or touching their nose. And I thought, why in the world do I need this? But she was really big on, we teach who we are. And so for you to be an excellent teacher, you need to be an excellent communicator. I think this will really help. So we, of course, do the things that our mentors tell us to do. And so I went, kind of got dragged there. And I was expecting the body language nonsense. And it was not that at all. It was all about how we come off and how we sometimes get in our own way about the weird nonverbal things that we're doing. And I was hooked. I chucked my plans for getting the PhD. I, <laughs> I went and I followed this man, this train who did the training that week long all over the United States on my own dime and became trained under him for a year. And then I went back to teaching, which is where I was comfortable. So I really started in education and I was training teachers on how to use these techniques to manage their classroom, to teach more effectively. And then from there, I transitioned to corporate and then the Oregonian here did a story on me and a lawyer read about it and said, oh, I wonder if you could come help me pick a jury and be a better lawyer. And I said, I don't see why not. And now about 90% of my work personally is in the legal field, although Forte, the company that I own, um, still does all the corporate training as well. Right. So what was it about it that got you hooked? That made well, you just fall in love? Because that's a, that's a big deal, like falling in love that strongly straight away and dropping everything to do it. Well, I've always been that kind of person that loves to learn about myself. And so I was so amazed to see, because I mean, how many of us, for example, I always ask my audience members, how many of you have been videotaped? And maybe, you know, a third of the group raises their hands and I always say, it's horrifying, isn't it? And everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's the worst. (laughs) And so I think really shining a light on, you know, the the nonverbal communications, the way we move through the world. And so if you tinker with how you're coming across non-verbally, it makes the most huge impact 
on the people around you, and yet the things that you're doing are actually quite small and nuanced. And I, that's what hooked me is that these tiny little changes could make such a huge difference on whether my students learned what I was teaching that day or whether I got coffee with the barista the way I wanted it. I mean, it just, it just went across the board. It just literally changed the way that I saw how the world worked. And I'm now seeing that with my clients and that when you kind of take a peek behind the curtain, the huge impact, how we come off non-verbally, I, I think we're all wired since birth to see other people non-verbally and adapt to their cues. But we never look at ourselves and we don't know the sometimes weird things that we're doing that are sending the wrong message. So I think that's why I was hooked immediately because it, it made such a huge impact on how I was coming across. So when you took those learnings to your music teachings, what was the biggest difference that you saw in terms of the way you use your, you know, your body language to, to get your message across to your students? Well, you know, I think it had a bigger impact because I always thought, you know, teaching always came fairly easy to me. I always really connected with my students. I felt I was nice and authoritative. I think it really played out for me uh, and which might be the the big learning for your for your audience is this idea of confidence is that, you know, what I started to, to really work in this field with people who weren't teachers, right? I've been a teacher my entire life. And not only that, I was a music teacher. So I wasn't, you know, a quote unquote, usual or normal teacher. And here <laughs> now I'm working with executives and now trial lawyers. And this was that huge part where I had to really go inside and go, okay, wait a minute. Can I really do this? And that's when I really came to this idea, and we work so much with that now in our work, is that body language starts in the brain. And so often I would be working with someone and saying, okay, I need your gestures to be bigger, or let's use this voice modulation, and they couldn't get there. And it wasn't until I said, what is it, what's the story that you're holding on to that's causing this nonverbal behavior? And boy, out would tumble this, well, I'm just so afraid I'm gonna lose the trial or I'm so nervous about this presentation. And I say, well, let's deal with that. And as soon as we dealt with it, the body language changed. I was just, whoa, that just blew my mind. And so a lot of people now look at this work as definitely communication work, but it's almost counseling in, in some ways with my one-on-one -on -one work with my clients. But I found that I also had to do the same thing. I had to be able to walk into a trial lawyer who's, you know, their last verdict was $10 million and act as if I belonged there. In fact, I had a, a high school student ask if they could come observe me one day. And I said, sure. So he came with me to this meeting with this attorney and we went to coffee afterwards, the high school student and I, and I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, I was just blown away by how, when you walked in there, it's like you own the place. And I said, look, you've got to act the part when you're with these big trial attorneys that are splashed across the papers, you know, you've got to act like you belong. And then they will in turn treat you as if you belong. And I think so many people, particularly women, not always women, but so many people wait for the training. If I just, once I have enough training, then I can act, you know, that I'm a big deal. Or, you know, once I have the right schooling, then I can really act like I'm a big deal. And I'm here to say, and this is why I tell my clients all the time, you've got to believe you're a big deal before anyone else will believe you're a big deal. And if you're waiting for a a degree or a training, stop waiting. Just act as if you belong and people will treat you as if you belong. And I guess it gets communicated non-verbally. I really believe that. So what's that fear that people have of like, what's holding them back from acting as if they are that person? Well, you know, I think it's that back to, we all have heard this, the imposter syndrome, right? We think that 
who we are comes down to what we know. And, and I know when I'm training new coaches here at Forte, it's a lot of it is, well, how do I coach this person? I don't, I've never been in that field. So I'm not sure what to, you know, if I'm going to have the right terminology. I, I always tell my coaches, I say, this isn't about you knowing about their field. This is about you knowing our field, which is communication. They'll teach you what you need to know in terms of, you know, how they speak and what their verbiage is. But our job is to help them show up and be big and be real. And I, I think, I think people are always waiting for, again, like I said, that, that training or that degree to give them the confidence. And it's, it's, it's so hard to recognize that, you know, for example, if we talk about experts, you know, who's an expert, there's no expert school. There's no expert degree, right? No, it's all perceived. (laughs) It's all perceived. And so you need to show up as the expert for people to believe you are an expert. And once you do that, I mean, I think that's how this music teacher with two advanced degrees in music, and I don't even have a communications degree, is now running a national communications firm that works with top attorneys and executives all over the United States because it's not like I was lying and saying, oh, I know how to do this when I didn't. I knew that I could teach people how to communicate better. I just didn't have a lot of the experience and I don't have a communications degree, but my confidence is what got me in the door. And then I was able to prove with my work that I could do it. And that's how I grew my business. That's why I think most people have a fear of, well, they're going to ask me what my business and what my degree is, or they're going to ask me how much experience I have. You know, I've said to people, you know, how many times people have asked me what my training is or what if I have a degree in this? And they go, how many times? I say zero. In 15 years of doing this, I've never had anyone ask me, outside of just curiosity once we've gotten to know each other, you know, wh- who are you and how, are, how do you think you have the right <laughs> to be teaching this information? Never, because I can non-verbally communicate, I've got this. You can trust this. And, and then, of course, you have to deliver. Nonverbal communication is not a, a Band-Aid for bad skills. You have to be able to deliver. But I think most people have the the... the the goods they just can't communicate they have the goods they're waiting for someone else to tell them that they're great and they just have to decide that they're great and communicate it Mm, i love that it's like instead of waiting for permission to be given to you Mm -hmm. just give yourself that permission absolutely i mean we talk a lot around here about presence and presence is your what we call your nonverbal persona so everyone has presence. You know, people go, I wish I had more presence. I go, you have presence. The question is, is it the presence that you want? Are you showing up the way that you want? And that comes back to this idea of being big and being powerful and people continue to think, well, that's something I have to earn. That's something I have to have a degree. That's something I have to, somebody has to tell me I'm great. And I always come back to, no, it starts with you. We teach other people how to treat us. You've got to decide that you're a big deal for other people to think you're a big deal. Can we dive a little bit deeper into presence? Mm Because I've seen you speak about it before and you say that there's four parts to it. Four components. Yeah. Four components. Yep. Can you take us through each of those? Sure. So the first one is mind. So that's the, the, you can't be, have presence if you're not actually present. And so I think that's the first place that most people go awry is that they're not actually here. So I'm working with a trial attorney and I'm watching them in court and they're asking a question of a potential juror. And as the juror starts to speak, where does the attorney go? Are they actually listening? 
No, they, they go in their head and they think, oh, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to follow up on that? What does everybody else think? Is this a good juror? Is this a bad juror? And then they lose this great opportunity to follow up on whatever the juror said because they weren't actually present and they weren't actually listening. And I think a lot of us do that. We tend to try to preempt the inevitable silence we are afraid is going to happen. In fact, we're so afraid of silence, uh, I think. Uh, humankind, for some reason, is afraid of silence. In fact, many of my seminars, I have us hold silence together for two minutes, and it's almost like people want to rip their faces off and run from the room. <laughs> but silence is so powerful. We're so afraid of it. And so I think the first component really is to get present, to have enough self-trust that you're going to know what to say when the person stops talking and that it will come to you more easily, in fact, if you're actually present with that juror or whoever you're speaking to, than trying to preempt that and go, okay, I'm going to come up with something to say so that I don't look like a fool once you know they're done talking. In fact, I was at lunch with a, a lawyer client recently and he was complaining about jury selection and how hard it was, which was always hilarious to me because I think that's the one time we can actually connect on a human level. But of course, lawyers are often have their humanness trained out of them in law school. <laughs> and uh, so we're talking and he says, I hate jury selection because you can prepare your side, but you never know what they're going to say. So it's always, you can never be fully prepared. And I said, you know, that's so true. How much did you prepare for today's conversation? And he said, what do you mean? I said, the conversation we're having right now, he said, I, I didn't prepare at all. And I said, and you're doing so well. It's amazing. <laughs> but it's so true. We're, we tend to be more present in our day-to-day -day activities. Mm -hmm. We go to coffee. We have lunch with people. We're not rehearsing what we're going to say. We're just there and present. And I think those are the best speakers. And people always talk about my presentations and how fun they are to watch. It's because they're, they're non-verbally excellent. At least I hope. I keep working at that. But I'm also very conversational, like like we're having coffee, me and these 300 people in the in the group. And I think that's where that that piece comes in is you've got to be here, you got to be present, you got to have enough self trust to not have to constantly be thinking ahead two or three sentences and just be with the person in front of you. That's the first piece. That's the mind piece. From what you said, it reminds me of a lot of podcasters go through this as well. A lot of beginner podcasters go through the same thing where we feel like, oh, I have to prepare all these questions and I have to know exactly what to say when they're finished speaking. And then while that person's speaking, we are freaking out about what the next question is to ask. And that's a skill that, you know, you have to learn as you go and you get better and better at it. But I can completely relate to what your clients go through with that. No, it's so true. It's so true because I think once you drop in, really it's not, you say it's a skill, but, and I'm sure that it is on a certain level, but really it's just self, it's confidence, isn't it? That you're going to be able to follow up on whatever I say or any of your other interviewees uh, because you're present and aware and something will come up for you like this story. You didn't pound the mm. story that you just said, you know, before we started talking. And I think that's the piece is that you're, you're, you're present enough to trust that you can handle whatever gets thrown at you because you're, you're breathing and you're aware, which breathing is the number one way to get yourself present. We talk a lot about breathing here as a number one communication skill of all time. Breathing gets you present. And so the better breather you are, the more present you can be. What is it about breathing that helps you get present? Well, I think, you know, most of the time, if you watch people, probably if you watched beginning podcasters or if you watched attorneys, when they go away, like I said a minute ago, they tend to hold their breath, 
right? So we tend to hold our breath when we are fearful or we're unsure. And what that does is activate your fight or flight response, which now makes you go into survival mode. And now you're not even thinking about anything. You're just thinking about how do I get out of this? What do I do? How do I save my butt, basically? When you Mm. breathe, you infuse your body with chemicals of calmness and you ground yourself. You know, we say here at Forte that uh, breathing or authenticity shows people who you are, but breathing shows people how you are. So it communicates Ah. to other people that you've got this. And the number one thing that any audience wants from its speaker or interviewer (laughs) or lawyer is to know you've got this. We want, we want you to do well. We want you to own that space when you're in front of us. Because if you don't, we feel uncomfortable. It really is about us. It's very selfish. And so when, <laughs> when you breathe and own it, you communicate, we're all going to be okay. I'm going to get you through this. Because breathing gets communicated. So that's, mm. that's the number one way to, to keep you grounded. Which then brings us to the second piece, which is the body. So... Mind, it starts with the mind. You got to be here to be, to have presence, but then you communicate your presence through the body. And so being aware of what you're communicating non-verbally and how you want to adapt and change depending on what's going on in the situation is also a big piece of it. For example, we talk in our work about two different sets of nonverbals. So we have our authoritative nonverbals. That's where the voice curls down, like what I'm doing now. We call it the James mm. Bond voice pattern and if you're standing waiter over both feet and if you're gesturing the palms are down and you tend to want to use authoritative body language and voice pattern when you're sending information meaning this is one-way communication you need to listen up but you don't want to use that all the time people who constantly use authoritative tend to look impatient or angry or not being open so we also have the approachable set of nonverbals where If you're speaking, the voice tends to curl up at the ends of sentences and your palms tend to focus up and you might have your weight over to one side. And we want to use approachable body language when you're seeking information. And so much of presence is understanding when to use each, right? So when I'm sending information and I want it to be understood, I'm going to curl my voice down, turn those palms down. But when I'm seeking information, I'm going to change my voice like I've changed it now. I'm going to tilt my head to the side. I'm going to have my palms facing up so that I can get information from the person that I'm speaking with. And excellent communicators know how to go in and out and know how to read the situation and do both. So that's a huge part of presence is the body. The third one is space, which is the hardest one to communicate because it's kind of this thing that we've we've hit on, but we can't quite explain how it works in that you have to be present. You have to use your body to communicate presence, but then you have to send your presence outward into the space that you're in. And here's the general rule of thumb. We are aware of how much space you, the presenter, are aware of. So meaning if you're only focused on your body or the few feet in front of you, to the audience, you are going to appear very small. But if instead, when you stand on a stage or in a meeting and you take in all the space around you, so you can know how high the ceilings are, you have the space behind you, you're kind of thinking all the way to the back of the room to the farthest corner, that increases your presence because now you've expanded your awareness of space. And so everyone around you kind of feels this expansiveness. I was telling this story in a, in a, in a seminar and a woman came up to me and she said, oh my goodness, I understand exactly what you're saying because I'm a ballroom dancer in my spare time 
and my teacher says when I'm dancing with my partner and I'm looking at my partner I still need to keep the audience in mind even though I'm not making eye contact with the audience because the audience will know whether I'm thinking about them or not and if I'm not thinking about them or aware of them they will feel like it's a private dance and then there's no reason for them to watch I said that's what we're talking about we're talking about space that you're kind of including that whole room, that whole area. And yet most people, when they speak, they are very small. They're only focused right on front of them, maybe on their notes, and that gets communicated. So that's the third component. And then the fourth component is others. So not only do you have to be here, communicate presence through your body and into the space in which you're communicating in, you also have, a, have to have an eye on who you're communicating it to and how are they reacting to you and uh, adapt your communication based on what you're observing. So those are the four components of presence and we work with people when we do presence coaching on expanding in one or all of those areas because everyone seems to have at least one of those areas that they can improve in. Just going back to the concept of the body that you were talking about and how you've got these two types of presence, you've got your authoritative and approachable and there are these different things that we can do so we can change our palms, we can change the way that we stand. How does someone who is getting started with this do those things with their body while also focusing on what they're saying, you know, and making it look like it's natural, you know, without being too awkward? How do we start doing that? That's a great question because it just reminds me we had our opening statement studio here a couple weekends ago. And these are lawyers that have been practicing 20, 30 years, but they come in and I have them working on all these nonverbal techniques and suddenly it's like they start forgetting their content. They can't remember where they're going because <laughs> they're so focused on what they're doing mm-hmm. with their hands and are they breathing and how are they moving and so on and so forth. So we, we say that it takes practice, first of all. But I think the, the, the bigger piece is that you really have to be in the mindset too. I mean, yes, adopting authoritative body language and voice pattern is going to make you feel more authoritative. But the reverse is also true. You've got to actually own, and going back to this idea of owning it, that you are authoritative and that will help make the body language more natural. Meaning, do not, when I was watching these attorneys two weeks ago, here they were and they're moving from, you know, in front of the jury and our mock jury over to our you know, their visual and the way they were walking from just being in front of the jury. And we're just talking about maybe five or six feet over to their visual. It was almost like they were like tiptoeing or like asking for permission to even be there in the first place. And so when I coached them in front of the jury, I said, look, the way you're walking is communicating to the jury that you don't belong here. So let me have you try this again. And now I want you to act like the jury are 12 people that you've invited over for dinner. And one of them has asked you for another glass of wine. How would you walk into the kitchen to go get that wine? Would you tiptoe into your own kitchen? And they said, (laughs) no, of course not. I said, okay, do it right now. I want you to walk right now from where you are into the kitchen because we have our office space here is an actual uh, reimagined condo. So we have a a kitchen right off off of the jury space. And boy, did that ever change the way they walked. So I think a lot of it's mind space. You've got to actually own the authoritative persona or on the flip side, if you're using the approachable persona, you have to actually want to hear from people. I mean, these aren't skills that you just use to manipulate. These are actual things you're doing that should match up with your intention. So if I want to hear from someone, you naturally turn the palms up. You'll, you'll just notice if you're listening to your child, for example, tell a story about school, you'll naturally tilt your head over to the side. It's just naturally what happens. So Part of it is awareness. You know, now these are new things that you're bringing into your awareness, so that's going to help. But part of it is actually 
taking that persona to heart and then of course practicing it people always ask me because my persona as you might imagine is more authoritative in general i'm from finland originally and Finns tend to be cold and you know <laughs> brutal and our voice pattern always curls down and so people ask me how long did it take you to you know adopt the approachable persona without having to think about it and i said never I still have to think about it. When I'm asking someone for their input, I still have to think to myself, tilt your head, bring the palms up. I mean, I start to do it more naturally once I get in the position, but because my resting place, quote unquote, is authoritative, I still have to nudge myself to make sure I go all the way over to the approachable. Am I being manipulative? No, because I actually do want to hear from the person and I know that adopting those nonverbals are going to help them feel comfortable with me enough to open up and talk to me, which is what I want. Absolutely. You know, in Australia, we tend to put an upward inflection at the end of every sentence. Yep. So it sounds like we're asking a question. Yeah, but we're like a little bit too approachable. And we often sound like, you know, we don't actually know anything because we're questioning everything we say. Mm -hmm. And even when people say their names, they'll say, uh, my name's Christina. And it's like, really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> right, exactly. We have to go the other way. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's the thing that people ask me, how does this work cross-culturally? And I say, you know, I do in my seminars a lot of times, I'll say, what do you think is the culture, I'm talking about nonverbal culture of say the South here in America versus the East Coast? And people always immediately get it. They go, oh, the South is approachable. Oh yeah, you know, with all the ma'ams and the thank you ma'am and all that mm. kind of thing. Where on the East Coast, you know, your New Yorker is much more authoritative, much more voice down. So a lot of this is regional, but the same thing still applies. Now, would I be able to be as authoritative in Australia as I would be able to be in New York? Probably not. I have to tone my authoritativeness down a little bit because the culture there tends to be more approachable. But that doesn't mean that authoritative still isn't sending the message that it's, you know, I'm sending information that you need to listen to. I just might need to back it off a little bit. Now, when you talk about others, so to me, um, it sounds like how do you engage the audience? Like, how do you respond to what they're doing? Is that what you mean by that? Absolutely. So when we, when we define nonverbal intelligence, for example, we say there are three parts. The first part is awareness. So you have to be aware of what you're communicating nonverbally and what other people are communicating nonverbally. But the second piece of nonverbal intelligence is adaptability. So not only do I need to be aware, I need to adapt based on what I see. So a lot of that can take you back to the authoritative and approachable. So often we mismatch. So we go into our audience and they are, let's say, a bunch of attorneys and they are highly authoritative. And how do I know that? Well, if I listen to them talking, their voice curls down like mine is right now. They don't make a lot of eye contact. They're sitting very straight. And I come in as presenter lady and I'm like, oh, let's start with a joke. Immediately I mismatch, right? I haven't read my audience. <laughs> my audience yeah. needs to know that I'm credible before I can joke. So in that audience, I would come up and I would say, thank you for being here. Let's get started. And boom, I'd get right to the issue because non-verbally they're communicating to me, get to the issue. And when I do that, I increase what we call here permission, meaning now they're more receptive to me because I've met them where they are. Now, 
vice versa, I go and I talk to a group of kindergarten teachers and everyone's talking like this and everyone's got their pastries and their coffee and it's so nice. I come into that group and I say, all right, let's get started. They look at me like, who's this person? She's so unfriendly. (laughs) So I I think that's the problem with most presenters. They go, this is my style. And I say, well, that's great. But you need to listen to and watch your audience to know how to adapt to what they're doing. It's like attorneys who've been trained to always ask what the jurors' hobbies are. So they come in and they go, okay, well, before we get started, let me ask, what are your hobbies? And I always tell them, I say, you know what a juror's thinking when you ask them what their hobbies are? They're thinking, what the hell does that have to do with anything? I'm here against my will, missing my son's baseball game. For, I don't even know why I'm here, but I've been called by the judge. <laughs> and you're asking me what my hobbies are? Uh, talk about a classic mismatch. We say yeah. that every single communication situation falls into one of two buckets. You're either tending to the relationship or you are dealing with the issue. One or the other. Jurors are not there to have a relationship with you. They want to know, why am I here? Issue. So you need to meet them there. You need to get to the issue and vice versa. There's other situations where you need to go more relationship before you can get to the issue. You can tell that non-verbally, you know, more approachable non-verbals tend to mean more relationship oriented people, more authoritative non-verbals tend to tell you that the people are more issue oriented. If you can go there and not only get to the issue or tend to the relationship, but actually adopt the same nonverbal patterns as your audience, boy, does your permission go up as a presenter. Absolutely. And that's, you've made it sound quite simple, actually, which, which, which I like. It's like you've either got this or you've got that. And I think that's a really good starting place for people to start recognizing, you know, is this authoritative? Is this um, more approachable? Uh, approachable. I keep forgetting that second <laughs> one. I don't know why. I need to write that down. Anyway, but that that's excellent. Sorry, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You've shared some amazing things and I'm going to start getting out there and noticing other people's body language a little bit more as well. I heard that you have a new ebook out. We do. It's called Pump Up the Volume, Words of Inspiration for Living a Bold, Big Life. And uh, we are giving it to your audience for free if they want to go download it. It's at our website, www.nonverbal, no dash, nonverbalforte.com backslash pump up the volume. And then there's also some free resources on our website on, there's a a tip sheet on approachable and authoritative. Um, There's another tip sheet on breathing. All that's free. They can do all that at our website. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sari. You're welcome. Thank you. Big thanks to Sari Delamotte from Forte for sharing her wisdom with us on the show. You can find out more about what she does at nonverbalforte.com or simply visit the show notes at thecmethod.com slash presence. And before I leave you for the week, if you are in Melbourne and you want to build your confidence and skill with public speaking and engaging your audience, remember to register for the Public Speaking Masterclass I'll be running on Friday 4th of August. Go to the C method, as in letter C, method.com slash masterclass. It is strictly limited to 12 spots. I just checked actually, and there's five already gone. I only published this yesterday, I think it was. So get on it now, go get your ticket, and I cannot wait to hang out with you and help you to dramatically increase your confidence with speaking. And that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Keep on being awesome. And I'll talk to you next week. My name's Christina Cantors, and this has been Stand Out, Get Noticed. Hold up. 